This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. And few things are going to shape the future of agriculture more than who owns and who operates farmland. Right now in 2020, we're at a pivotal time when you consider trends such as the aging farmer, farm consolidation, increased absentee farmland ownership, and the rise of financial tools, or fintech tools as they're often called. These trends and tools, as well as the Jobs Act passed back in 2012, are enabling a rise in online platforms to invest in farmland. In fact, we featured a couple of them on previous episodes, including Harvest Returns back in episode 93 and Acre Trader in episode 169 just this past year. I'm pleased to bring on a third platform for investing in farmland on today's show. We have David Chan, who is the co-founder and COO of Farm Together. Now, you may ask, why bring on a third farmland investment platform? Haven't we heard this story before? Legitimate question, but here are my reasons. Number one, I think the changing hands of farmland will have a significant impact on the future of agriculture, at least here in the U.S., for sure. Number two, I've had a few of you reach out to me after my last interview with AcreTrader with follow-up questions, such as... Will these platforms allow foreign investors to acquire more U.S. farmland? And what about states that prohibit corporate farmland ownership? And we address both of those topics in this episode. And number three, last but not least, I'm just really impressed with the horsepower behind this Farm Together team. For starters, David, who's on the show today, has a Harvard MBA, six years of agricultural investing experience, including time at farmland investment giant Prudential. He also has startup experience as employee number seven of ag tech startup grow intelligence. His co-founder and the CEO of the company, Artem Milinchuk, has experience with institutional investing and private equity. He also was employee number one at AgTech startup Full Harvest Technologies. I won't go into the backgrounds of everyone on the team, but they're equally as impressive. So with this impressive background in investing in agriculture and technology, I'm excited to bring you this interview with David Chan. David's going to start off by answering my question about why the large established players in the institution farmland management space aren't hopping on this fintech revolution that we're seeing to capture this opportunity with their clients. So if you look at all of the largest legacy farmland funds in the United States, almost all of them are insurance companies. Uh, Prudential, Nuveen, which is part of TIA Crest, Hancock, Liberty Mutual, they all are tied with, you know, a parent company that is in the insurance business. And that's not by mistake, that's by design. Insurance companies find real assets, particularly farmland, to be exceptional an exceptional asset class because they're able to match their long-term liabilities with the long-dated nature of the asset class. You're not investing in farmland for a year. If you're investing in a permanent property, you might be investing for 25 years, 30 years, maybe in some cases, 40 years. And for long-term liability balance sheets, which are typically found on, you know, that that would be your balance sheet if you're an insurance company. It's a perfect match. So that's how really institutional capital came into the space. 
And then quickly following that university endowment start to see the opportunity and some pension plans start to see the opportunity. So that, that's really how the U.S. farmland invest, U.S. institutional investment market for farmland developed. You know, I would say the dynamic today is as a result of all that, these are these are big institutions. You know, they're generally over a billion in, in assets. And the rule of thumb is real, real assets should be anywhere between five and 10% of your total portfolio exposure. And so if you're a billion dollar fund, then that would imply, you know, you might be deploying anywhere from 50 to 100 million into farmland or other real assets, uh, farmland, timberland. And so they need to move significant pieces of capital. And this has sort of led to a screening process where unless your farm is, you know, say worth $20 million in value or maybe even somewhat higher, it's not that interesting for an institution. You know, moving $5 million, $10 million doesn't really move the needle for for their underlying clients and beneficiaries. And so they often don't look at the majority of deals that are available in the U.S. And this is a function of the U.S. farmland market. We are a fragmented market. 97 or 98% of U.S. farmland is privately held by families or operator networks. And over 70% of U.S. farmland is under 5,000 acres in size. And so, you know, when a deal does come to the market that's over that threshold, there's also now a dynamic where, you know, all of these large players are aware of the same properties and are bidding against each other to, to, to get those properties. And in our view, you know, there's so much opportunity below that threshold. There are so many high quality farms that are for sale, that are coming for sale over the next couple of years that may only be $2 million in value or $5 million in value or $15 million in value. And, you know, that, that's cer- there's certainly room in the market for institutional capital to, you know, to look for those deals if, if it so chooses, unless, you know, the dynamic continues and, and we continue to see folks chasing 30 and 40 and $50 million properties. But it also opens the door for the retail investor. And, and that's where, you know, the advent of crowdfunding, you know, makes this possible. And so, you know, we think it's a beautiful thing. Now, retail investors can have access to properties that are institutional quality and offer institutional level returns. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. And define that retail investor for us. So somebody who's going to use your platform to invest in farmland, you know, generally speaking, is this an accredited investor? And then, you know, give us sort of the profile of, of the right person who, or not the right person, but the, the most common person who's using your platform to invest in farmland. Certainly. So right now we are operating under, all of this comes from the Jobs Act that was passed by the Obama administration in 2012 and essentially kicked off crowdfunding as a market. And so all of these policies are under a regulation called Regulation D, and then you register under a variety of different exemptions. And so most of our deals are under an exemption called Rule 506C. And Rule 506C requires us to verify that all U.S. persons investing in the deal are accredited investors. And so today, the definition of an accredited investor in the United States is an individual who earns at least $200,000 a year for the last two years in gross income, or a married couple who earn who has earned at least $300,000 per year for the last two years in gross income, or an individual or family that has $1 million in net assets, excluding their primary residence. And so it's a high bar. You know, we, we realize that there are many investors, many retail investors who understand the benefits and risks of farmland and, and, you know, would love to find a way to invest directly and can't today because of this, this rule. And so we're actively looking for, 
you know, ways in which we can design products that would open up our, our direct offerings to non-accredited investors as well. And, you know, one, one piece of news that we're very excited and encouraged by, and, you know, we'll, we'll be, we'll be issuing a comment as, as a firm on this to the SEC, but just two days ago, the SEC voted to propose amendments to the definition of accredited investor status in the U.S. And this amendment would essentially allow for a non-financial qualification to accredited status. So if a person had a certain level of professional knowledge or experience or certain certificates, they would be granted accredited status. And we think that this is fantastic because there are many, many investors out there who, again, understand this asset class well. You know, this whole regulation is put into place to protect investors, rightfully so, from investing in an asset class in which they don't really understand the risks and, you know, it might not be suitable for them. But we come across so many investors who, you know, for whatever reason, don't meet the, the financial thresholds, but are savvy investors and, and know exactly the, you know, the merits and the risks of, of this asset class. And so if this proposal is ultimately supported and the definition is changed by the SEC, we think this would be wonderful because so many more of our prospective clients would be able to directly own farmland through us. Okay, well, talk about the the international thing some more. So I know some countries have laws where a foreigner cannot buy real estate in their country. Does the U.S. have any sort of restrictions on this, or is it kind of wide open if any you know foreign investor that qualifies could uh, could invest through Farm Together? You know, that's a great question. There are countries that have placed significant restrictions for foreign ownership on, on farmland. Brazil is an example of that. Even And then even within countries, there are sometimes states or provinces that have their own hurdles. So in Canada, there are some provinces in Western Canada, I believe Saskatchewan is one, where you have to, you you need to be a Saskatchewan entity in order to buy Saskatchewan farmland. And, and there's restrictions, even if you're Canadian, but you know, you're here in Quebec, you know, it, it might not be possible for you. So it's interesting how there are some of these protections in place for certain regions. The U.S. has been fairly open on foreign direct investment in farmland. And, you know, we generally don't see too much dispersion in that uh, between states either. Now, that being said, I will caveat, there are some states that do have some restrictions in place for corporate ownership of farmland. And so an example of a couple of states that have that would be uh, Minnesota. And I believe, I believe Wisconsin falls under that as well, and also Nebraska. And so if you are a corporate entity, you, you know, you have higher hurdles if it's even possible, I actually don't think it's possible to purchase farmland in those states because of state laws. That's pretty unique, though, and the number of states where that's the case is is fairly limited. In most cases in the United States, it's it's fairly easy for both domestic investors and foreign investors to own farmland. Okay, and let's let's talk about the platform some more. So if I if I do qualify as an investor and I'd like to include farmland as part of my portfolio, I hop on your website farmtogether.com and then what happens? Sure. So you would log into our website and create an account. Then once you share a bit more information about yourself and you have an account, you'll be able to see all of our resources and both live offerings which are actionable investments that, you know, if if you were interested, you could invest there and then today and past investments as well, so that you could see how we have structured deals in the past. And with each offering, whether it be active or, or a past offering, you'll see all of the resources that were put together 
in bringing that offering to market. And so this will include all the deal documents, the private placement memorandum, the subscription agreement and operating agreements, any webinars that we host. We, we host at least a webinar for each offering where someone from our team will walk through you know, the selection process, why we, why we picked this property, what we think are the merits, we'll address the risks, We'll highlight each value creation driver that we've identified and our plan to execute on each of them. And then we'll take questions from the audience. Um, so all of those webinars can be found in the offering pages as well. If we have imagery or this is pretty, this is new actually, but for our, our latest offering, a Mandarin farm in uh, Tulare County, California, which we just posted uh, this week, we actually have drone footage, which is really cool. So you can find the drone footage on the deal page as well. We have an extensive FAQ section. We have a white paper that you can download to learn more about farmland investing. And then once you're an investor on the platform, again, the platform, you're, you know, once you're logged in with your credentials, is really a one-stop shop. So in addition to being able to make investments through the platform in a, in a seamless and quick way, you'll also be able to track the performance of your investments in our platform. So we'll show you each year's projected yields and actual yields for comparison so you can judge and see How's the property performing? You'll see expected distributions and actual distributions. So again, you know, in spirit of transparency, you can see how is this property performing compared to where we had where we had it in underwriting. All tax information will be shared through the platform. So we form these as pass-through entities, which issue K1s. So your K1 will go right into your platform and will be available for you for downloading. You know, no need to to look look out for it in the mail. And so really we've we've put in a lot of effort into creating a, a one-stop shop to serve all of our investors' needs from education and exploration and learning to investments and actually funding your, your, you know, your opportunity that you're interested in to tracking those opportunities, receiving your distributions and receiving any relevant tax forms as well. I would think your due diligence process would have to be extremely extensive. And obviously, you know, ultimately you're, you're trying to get at to a projected internal rate of return. But what, what other, you know, what factors go into what types of farmland properties catch your interest to be um, uh, put on the, on the platform? I mean, do, do you think about, hey, well, I'd really like more permanent crops or I'd really like to list a property in XYZ state? Or is it really just getting down to how the numbers look at the end of the day? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, first I'd say a little bit of how we're structured. So we have a strategic partner for our row crop or annual crop properties. So these are properties that farm corn, soy, wheat, peas, and anything that's planted, you know, each year. And so we work with a fund called Farmland Opportunity, which is managed by a gentleman named Jay Gerardo. And Jay is a partner of ours, an investor in Farm Together. And he, you know, he sees the, the opportunity of what we're doing in terms of building up tech to support farmland investments. And so that's really how the partnership was formed. And, you know, Jay is a great partner for us because he has been operating farmland opportunity for over a decade now. All of our row crop offerings, we, we, we source and work on with Jay. And so we currently have a row crop offering live on our platform. And Jay and Farmland Opportunity will source that property for us. They will work on identifying the operator and uh, and managing the tenant relationship there. And so we feel really good about you know having a partner like that on the row crop side. On the permanent side, this is where our team has had a tremendous amount of experience. So Josiah Terrell Preek, our director of Farmland Investing, was you know managing a portfolio at at Prudential. He was based in the Central Valley there, and and so he's worked on so many 
deals across permanence from citrus to tree nuts to wine grapes, table grapes, high-density apples, you name it. And so I think in his career thus far, he's deployed over a quarter of a billion dollars into U.S. farmland investments. And we feel really good about, you know, both his abilities and sort of our complementary abilities there to identify the best permanent properties. And so, uh, you know, to your question on, do we think about the state? Do we think, you know, a little bit of that comes into play, but really we start on sort of some, some core diligence items and most of them are agronomic. And so we'll think about, you know, what, what is the, what is the environmental risk to this property? What is the weather risk? What is the climate risk? So, you know, unfortunately, California had one of the worst droughts in history just, you know, six years ago or so. Fortunately, that means we have a really strong back test to see how properties fared during that time. And so we'll we'll go back and look at, you know, if we're looking at a piece of land in California, how did that property perform during that period? Was it resilient? And, you know, and did the trees survive and not only survive, but thrive after and, and remain very healthy with strong yields? Or was there a lot of replanting or grafting that had to happen because of tree stress and death? And so, you know, we'll, we'll start there. We'll look at climate resiliency. We'll look at climate patterns and projections. My background is in meteorology. And so I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to the space, but we'll look at, you know, various RCP models, which are basically the climate models that the IPCC uses when they write their report. We'll look at the base model the uh, and then also the more aggressive model and see, you know, what does that look like for this property in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, because these are long-lived assets. So you must consider what the environment may look like in the future when you are purchasing these properties today. We'll look at the soil health. We'll look at the water rights and the riparian rights. This is probably the other largest component of our diligence. So in California, there's a new legislation called SIGMA, which is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Basically, this law will will renew the riparian rights system of California and introduce water pricing uh, in many of the districts. And so you know, we think it's really important to have two water sources for each property or a path to having two water sources, both groundwater and surface water. We think it's really important to understand the specific irrigation district that you're in, understanding the dynamics of the water board for that district. And so, you know, I, I think I know we're a little in the weeds now, but that's where most of the time is spent really getting a good feel for those agronomic dynamics, because those are the biggest risks in permanent planting properties. And then once we get beyond that and we feel good about the property, the soil, the water, you know, we'll look at we'll look at fundamentals of the commodities that are grown there. We'll look at, you know, neighboring properties and, you know, potential exit strategies for the property when we look to sell, you know, at the end of the investment horizon. We'll look at state concentrations just for diversification purposes for our clients. So if we've done you know, five permanent planting deals in California in a row, maybe the next one we'll really try to find something good in Oregon or Washington just to add a little bit of a, you know, of a diversification into the mix there for folks who are looking to diversify. So that's how the process goes. It's, it's a, it's a arduous process. It's a lot of work. Our pipeline right now of available properties that we know of that are for sale exceeds 600 million. And to whittle that down to, you know, the, call it $5 million worth of properties that you put on the platform. It's, uh, it's a tall task, but, uh, but we have the team in place to get through that. Well, I was going to throw you a curveball with a Sigma question, but you beat me to it. That's awesome. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a, it's a big deal in California and, and water, you, you know, 
any any irrigated agriculture water is going to be a big risk. And I, I you mentioned it being a long term investment. So if I if I invest on Farm Together, when when and how do I get my money back? Sure. Uh, each offering will have a a timeline that is associated with that offering. Other phrases or terms that some folks throw around for this type of timeline is a holding period, an investment horizon. But essentially, it's a, a, a number of years in which you're committing your capital towards the asset. And then at the end of that timeline, it's our job to sell the property and allow you to realize your capital appreciation on the property. So the range of, you know, the, the number of years on the platform that, you know, the or number of years of, 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 of holding for an offering on the platform can be a little bit broad, I'd say, on the shorter side, probably at minimum three but really more often four or five years. These are long-term assets and long-term investments. So we don't recommend folks to, you know, to want to be in farmland for a year or anything like that. It's hard to execute on value creation drivers in that short of period of time. Sometimes you know, for certain properties, especially on the permanent side, you, you may have whole periods of seven years upwards to 10. And again, it really depends on the property itself. If there's a development uh, component, so are the trees very young? And part of the investment thesis is, you know, developing those trees into mature, commercial yielding trees, and then realizing that gain at sale. So a lot of different factors that take place, but I'd say generally the range would be about three or four years to about 10 years. But I would say, regardless, if you're investing in farmland, going under three years is, is risky because it's really tough to execute value creation drivers in that short amount of time. Right. As the time goes on, so once once we've closed on a property and I'm an investor, what communication do I have about what's going on with my investment? And, and uh, am I getting money every time there's, there's a harvest? Yeah, so it depends on how the deal is structured. If it's a cash, if it's a cash lease deal, which often we would do a cash lease offering if it's a row crop property, then you're going to be receiving rental income at a minimum of annually. Sometimes, depending on the contract with the tenant, could be semi-annually, and those distributions will be made to you via the the our investor portal, which you can see if you create an account. You know, you'll, you'll be able to see what that interface looks like. And so you know, as soon as we lock in the lease terms and the lease agreement with the tenant, those expected distributions will pop up in your in your portal. And so you'll have a, an idea on when that rental income will, will be realized and when it will be distributed to you. In permanent plantings, we generally will have a direct operating model where we hire an operator and pay an operator to do the farming and your, uh, your income is driven by the sales from harvest. And so that model tends to be uh, just an annual distribution after harvest and similarly would work, you know, uh, there would be a projection based on where we think yields are going to come in and, you know, where we underwrote commodity prices for that given commodity. Um, and those distributions will be, pay, will be paid out to you via the portal. Okay. And um, I, I assume, you know, because it's a hard asset, I mean, are you all, are you all sending me regular reports and uh, do I pay an ongoing management fee? Yes. So there is a management fee component to our offering. You know, we, it, it's been a bit, it hasn't been a fixed fee because we try to price it based on the complexity of the deal and the amount of work that's required. So for our first deal, our annual management fee was, is 50 basis points or half a percent. And really what that entails is, you know, our active monitoring of the tenant, our auditing of the property, our assessments annually, so we'll have we'll have an appraiser come in and appraise the uh, the value of the farmland once a year, 
And we'll provide all of that data to you. We actually send out quarterly updates that are not quite as detailed. We're not doing quarterly appraisals, but in the quarterly updates, we'll share, you know, if it's a spring update and it's a row crop property, how planting went, how was weather, any concerns that we're addressing, anything that, you know, the investors should be aware of, you know, in, in the fall update, maybe, you know, particularly in like the permanent space. We actually just sent out our Q4 update on our El Nido almond property. And, you know, it was a, a positive one because the meat weight of the almond came in 13% higher than we had underwritten. Prices were also above where we had underwritten. So we had good news to share with our investors, which is always uh, very nice. And so, you know, you can expect to receive at, at, at least a quarterly update with some information on what's happening on the farm. And then at least annually, a comprehensive update, which includes a refreshed appraised value of the property. And what do what do farmers think of all this? I mean, I would I think it probably depends on what side you're on. A farmer that wants to sell a property probably loves having new investors come into the space and in you know sort of compete for buying my property. But I would think maybe other farmers uh, kind of don't want the the competition to acquire land. Or are you are you getting any of that feedback? No, we you know I I think the feedback that we've received from the farmer community has actually been to date universally positive. You know, in a, in a number of situations, we think that we can actually help farmers by solving estate planning and transfer questions that are ugly and messy to deal with as a family, especially, you know, and I, I always say this is, this is my new storyline, but for whatever reason, and this is maybe a sample size of, you know, 20. So I, I think if I remember my interest stats class, you need 30 for it to be uh, real. But um, we've come across so many farmers who have three kids. And two of the kids want liquidity and just want out of the, you know, they're, they know they're going to inherit the farm, but they'd rather just sell the farm, take their liquidity and, and, and move on. And one, one child who wants to continue at least owning the farm, sometimes continue operating as well. And to date, there hasn't really been any capital solutions for the situation, which is becoming a very common situation in the United States. And so, you know, what platforms like Farm Together can do for farm families in this situation is we can syndicate out, you know, whatever portion of the farm the family is looking to sell. So in this example I'm giving, you know, we would syndicate out 66 and two thirds percent of the equity of the farm to our investor community. And we would leave the one third stake with the, you know, with the heir who is looking to continue to own the farm. And if they are a seasoned operator and they know how to manage the farm, then we, you know, certainly happy to also look at keeping them on board as the operator as well. We can even go so far as to, you know, if, if that one sibling wants to increase their ownership stake over time, you know, when we're looking to sell, sell the property at the end of the investment period, perhaps they can get, you know, a first look at, at potentially increasing their ownership stake. So there's a lot of ways that we can be creative with capital and solve generational problems that, are becoming more and more common in the U.S. farming community. Yeah, definitely. And I was I was a little bit surprised, not in a bad way, you know, in a good way, to see that you that Farm Together was included in Indigo Ag's Terraton Challenge. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, how Farm Together fits into Terraton Challenge? Which my understanding was a challenge to try to sequester more carbon through regenerative practices. 
Yes. So I am very, very proud of our inclusion as a semifinalist in the Terraton Challenge. So a quick story, but when I was at business school, I worked with a team on an MBA case competition or a graduate student case competition through Patagonia. And we made it to the finals. And so we had an opportunity to pitch to Rose Mercario, who's the CEO of Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder, and their entire leadership team on how we could scale regenerative farming. So Patagonia actually now has a a food arm, which a lot of people might not know, but it's called Patagonia Provisions. And they make soup packets. They make very, you know, different kinds of bars, granola bars and protein bars, Um, basically, you know, outdoor friendly, camper friendly food that's created through regenerative ingredients. And so Yvonne Chouinard and, and Rose Mercario put their heads together and, you know, Climate is probably one of the, probably the top issue, climate and conservation, that Patagonia as a company has taken a active stand on. And they've identified this as, as the number one solution towards climate change. And, and they're putting their money where their mouth is and, and really trying to make regenerative, you know, a, a mainstream product category. And so this was back in 2017. That's when I first really learned about regenerative. Regenerative practices have been We've known about them for decades now. I think, you know, Rodale Institute's one of the leaders in, in studying and understanding these practices. And I think they've been at this since the 1980s. So this isn't new, but, it, it, you know, consumers don't know about this. And, and products have not been developed with regenerative ingredients. So the consumer side of the market is brand new. Fast forward to today, you know, now companies like Indigo, who are creating a carbon market for farming, who see the potential of sequestering carbon through farm management practices like regenerative cultivation, you know, are, are building this ecosystem. And so, you know, we are a part of that ecosystem and where they see farm together fitting in, you know, we, we can be the marketplace solution for scaling regenerative ag in the United States. And so we're working with other participants in the cohort who have, you know, the other missing puzzle pieces like sensory and being able to count and, and record the number of tons of carbon sequestered per acre. Uh, That's much more hardware tech, obviously a different solution than than, uh, what a digital marketplace like Farm Together has to offer, but a required piece of the equation nonetheless. And we've heard from so many clients who are impact-driven, mission-driven, who understand, have recently learned about regenerative, understand the benefits, deeply want to invest into scaling and making this, you know, a, a real effort. And there are limited, if any, opportunities out there that are actionable where they can actually deploy capital. And so, you know, we are working very hard on bringing a regenerative offering onto our platform within the first quarter of 2020. And we're looking forward to not only allowing folks who understand the promise of regenerative to invest towards realizing the tremendous promise of this new farming practice, but also educating our our users, you know, regardless of, of whether or not they ultimately want to become an investor, and what regenerative is and what it means, and ultimately trying to help be a, a part of the solution in making a real consumer product market here. Okay. Well, I think we could do a whole nother episode on, on regenerative and trying to figure out like what the heck it means and what it looks like going forward and how to quantify it and how to measure it. But uh, I really appreciate your time today, David. Thank you so much. I guess we need to send anyone who's interested in your work to farmtogether.com. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Okay. And feel free, anyone can feel free to send me an email as well. It's just david at farmtogether.com.
And I did want to mention, because we, we're running out of time here, but they have a partnership with an IRA company. So if you wanted to include this as part of your retirement savings, if you were an accredited investor, you could do that as well, which I think is pretty cool. Yes, our partner there uh, is a firm called Alto IRA. They're a self-directed IRA provider. And we currently have clients who are investing into our offerings through their IRA. We think uh, similarly to you, Tim, there's tremendous advantage in using qualified funds to invest in in an asset class like farmland. Definitely. Great. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you so much to David Chan for being on the show. Enjoyed that look at what they're doing over there at Farm Together. I think it's fascinating when you look at some of the fintech companies that are also ag tech companies such as this one. And we had FarmOp Capital on the show last fall. Also a different kind of play on fintech and ag tech, but some interesting stuff happening out there. And I'm pleased to, to have them on the show. Wanted to read an iTunes review because it's been so long. I couldn't even remember the last one I read, but got one here from... The Guy GRM is the name on iTunes, at least. It says, a great casual yet technical look at agriculture. The Future of Ag podcast is a great high-level look at what is coming next in agriculture, presented in a way that makes me feel like I'm chatting with my best friend. All right, best friend. Uh, Each podcast is real, having lighthearted yet technically deep conversations. The concepts are always thought-provoking yet quick to grasp. If you want to learn more about ag tech or you enjoy a fantastic engineer-type talk show, this one will have you hooked. Hey, that was such a nice review. Thanks for the thought there. If you're listening and haven't left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, please do so. I would love to, uh, to have you help us spread the word. And speaking of spread the word, thank you very much to all of you who shared the New Year's Day episode, the five trends for the future of agriculture. That one got some great airtime, I guess, so to speak, on, on social media. Thanks to all of you sharing. Really appreciate those of you who share these episodes and get the word out for us. I teased on that episode a potential membership community coming where we could all work together to try to improve the show for all benefit. And and I'm going to tease that once again, because it's not ready yet, but it's coming. So stay tuned for that as well. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly and really excited for this year and more great stories about the future of agriculture. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.